It's another beautiful day here in Toronto. Actually, no, it's not. It's cold and rainy, but that's okay. You can stay inside and listen to the podcast. You're listening to The Green Majority Show, of course. We have one of our favorite guests join us for most of the program today, including all of the bonus show, Tim Nash. And Christina Henka comes in and interviews Ken Bodie uh, from Unifor as well. Another great show. If you'd like to support this program, you'll like to hear more of it, uh, or just want to let us know what a great job we're doing, you can do that by uh, signing up for being a member on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Green Majority. Any amount helps. We encourage people to consider 5 or $10 a month. Uh, if you just want to let us know that you love us but can't really afford that, that's fine. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Go ahead and do that today. Enjoy the show. And we are live. It's CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kester. You're listening to The Green Majority, and we're going to be uh, having another interview-packed show today. I've been very happy to have so many guests in the studio because it makes my life way easier. I have to do a lot less work. So starting in reverse order, just really quickly, at the end of the show, Sabina's been off a little bit. She'll be joining us for a piece on uh, international uh, relations, maybe is the tease there. I don't know. We're talking about uh, some foreign countries and the impact of long-term uh, climate decisions and reactionary versus uh, uh, anticipatory policy. Uh, in the middle of the show, and already sitting right beside me, who'll be joining us in a minute, Tim Nash, the sustainable economist, still the title holder for most ever visits on the program proudly uh, one of these days we'll get you a plaque for that tim Fantastic. uh or a belt either or yeah uh coming up first however we've been uh, also very very uh um uh, benefited i'm just at a loss for my words say my my language is just off today i'll have to apologize we are graced once again by uh, Christina Henka, who's joining us uh, and she'll be taking point right now in just a moment she's going to be interviewing uh ken uh, Bondi, uh, but we are just having a quick uh, technical moment getting him on the phone. So I'm going to uh, just quickly overview uh, some of the things we'll be talking about. So Ken Bondi, when we do get him on the phone in just a minute, when I uh, pass to Christina, is the uh, health and safety representative for the Canadian Auto Workers, which is uh, Unifor. Um, and do you want to do a little Yeah, may I just correct yeah, you there? Please. It used to be the Canadian Auto Workers Union, of course. In 2013, they merged um, and became Unifor. Mm. So he now is actually part of Unifor, no longer CAW. I've, uh, I'm, as I said, at a bit of a loss this week. I finally got enough sleep, and I think it's made me a little tired. But uh, perhaps because we're uh, just uh, still struggling to get him on the phone, perhaps, Tim, do you want to uh, help me out here and just tease uh, your section a little bit? We'll just uh, just mention you had an event, so we'll, we'll just preempt it. Sure. Do you want to say what your event was? Uh, and then when we get uh, Ken on the phone here, we'll, we'll jump back. Sure, that's fine. So uh, yesterday at the Center for Social Innovation, I hosted the Good Investment Fair. So it was basically a farmer's market for community bonds, is how I describe it. And uh, it, was, it was pretty awesome. We had probably about 350 people uh, come out to the event, and people were able to sort of shop around. Um, so I uh, would love to be able to tell you about sort of some of the great organizations that participated there and just kind of the, the overall energy and space in the community bond sector right now. 
And uh, okay, so we uh, looks like we will have to kill a little bit more time. That's uh, fine. So um, yeah, unfortunately, just a little bit of uh, phone trouble this morning. That's fine. So uh, it'll it's a little bit disjointed, but uh, yeah, I think it'll just be easiest for flow. Why don't we just keep sure. going and then we'll just interrupt where we started. So uh, just as far as for background, so Tim, you've been on the show a number of times as the only uh, economist who was, has graced our, our airwaves. I think mostly because most of them don't like me. That's possible, but no, I, I, <laughs> could could be part of it. But I, I think uh, we gotta invite some more economists on here. I could well, point you towards a couple good ones. Well, and I think part of part of the uh, part of the reason uh, was a lot of the time was that it it seems at least uh, to me that a lot of the times when we even hear about economists, they're usually being pulled in to defend policies that tend to be anti-environmental and maybe that's not accurate but that's i feel like how a lot of the times that you know when we think about economists we think about somebody saying oh well you're not being realistic you know this is why we need to, to build pipelines and stuff like that and you're part of a sort of new wave of um, people who are rethinking systems and this is sort of one of the themes of the show is rethinking how systems work absolutely this is very much the frame of your work which is here's a traditional role that people have in people's lives either getting financial advice or, or things like that Th- topics that A, tend to not be as progressive sounding, but also B, tend to be uh, a little bit you know, occasionally anti the movement that we tend to be talking well, about. Well, you know, and, and so I really take issue to this uh, uh, sort of two-sided approach, mm. right? And understanding the sort of for and against and, and sort of putting economists on one side. And I think that, you know, in my position in this is that um, capitalism is a really efficient method of uh, – uh, uh, of getting of using capital right the problem is that it's it's too narrowly defined and so now there are a lot of economists that would agree that our current economic system is broken for a variety of reasons and some of them are trying to hang on to the status quo and especially as it relates to social and environmental issues but you know i would just talk about thomas piketty and the work that he did as a very stone cold economist um and and really bringing to light this idea of income inequality and showing um, using very rigorous methods that income inequality is a problem and that it's something that we need to address. And there's certainly a huge ecological economics movement. Uh, Peter Victor uh, here in Toronto mm-hmm. uh, would absolutely be considered a global leader in this space. And there are a lot of people working on it. The reality is that you're not hearing those voices. And I think part of it is the the issue of economists generally are not as sort of public facing as I think I am. We could get into sort of introversion and extroversion preferences and, you know, what type of person self-selects to go into the field of economics. Um, But it's so I think that part of it is understanding that. You know, we need those voices and uh, uh, we need more space for those voices. So this is why I love the fact that on your show, I can come in as an economist, talk to people who aren't reading economic journals, reading, reaching people who uh, um, really, I think, will benefit the most from learning about uh, how these systems are changing and evolving. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, and of course, when I was uh, referencing that a minute ago, we were talking about like common perceptions, not necessarily, you know, my opinion, I agree. And that's part of the reason why we like to have on that show is because it's it's a voice that isn't heard. But that's not necessarily because there aren't any people saying these things. It's because these people, as you say, are not necessarily being the ones to reach out and grab headlines. It's both. Right. It's both that, you know, for me is as the sustainable economist, I've had to reach out and grab headlines, like for me to get PR, 
You know, people don't come to me. I have to go to them and kind of generate these things. Um, but at the same time, there aren't a lot of economists or ecological economists doing this. Um, so it often tends to be uh, a, a bit of a sort of chicken and egg situation there that uh, I'm just trying to go after both at the same time. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's uh, back up a little bit uh, and uh, put that on pause, I think, for now. So that was a good intro. We've got a theme. We'll come back and specifically talk about your specific event in a minute. But we do now have Ken Bondi on the phone, so I'm going to pass it over to my colleague, uh, Christina, to take it away. Thanks, Darren. So for almost 30 years now, union man Ken Bondi has represented workers, helping them to create safer and healthier workplaces. He was the health and safety representative for the Canadian Auto Workers Union. Then, when it merged in 2013 with the Communications, Energy and Paper Workers Union of Canada and became Unifor, now the largest private sector union in Canada, Ken Bondi continued his work on behalf of workers. For example... He initiated and designed the Unifor National Prevent Cancer Campaign. He also developed an extensive workplace environment course for union representatives and a course on good jobs in a green economy for Unifor union members. This past week, Unifor union members had the opportunity to participate in a course on climate change and what it means for their jobs. This morning, Ken Bondi, the man responsible for, shall we say, deepening environmental consciousness among workers, joins me on the phone from Edmonton, Alberta. Ken Bondi, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for making some time to talk with me about what your fellow union members are learning about climate change. Yes, it's a pleasure, absolutely. And I hear we had a little bit of excitement in that uh, you're staying at a hotel, uh, work-related, and uh, you were... uh, denied access to your room and we couldn't reach you for a while i understand yeah yeah these things happen but yes i'm uh, actually just wrapping up uh, a three-day session with our unifor prairie council uh with uh, approximately 220 delegates so uh, that gives us an opportunity to talk about um geographically spe- specific issues as well Hmm. And when I think of Alberta, I think of conservative people. I think of the oil sands. So in terms of your jobs, that that is probably quite interesting. Yeah, not only interesting, but, uh, of course, as everybody uh, knows, uh, a quite a uh, quite a sharp turn in events the last election here where they did elect uh, an NDP government. And so one of the things that we have been talking about is the change of that leadership and the change of direction in the oil-rich province of Alberta and how uh, uh, the Notley government has been really taking a serious look at climate change issues. Mm-hmm. So um, let's start at the beginning. So in my introduction, I mentioned that this past week, uh, your union has been running a course on climate change um, for your fellow uh, union members, climate change and, and uh, your job, right? Um, so can you tell me how this course came about? Yeah, so this is, um, uh, we have long been a socially conscious union, and so we know that, uh, well, our primary function as a union is to protect our members' jobs we also have to look at what are the issues that surround our members' families, what impact are uh, things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis going to do to the future generations. And so uh, certainly talking to our members 
about climate issues, about environmental issues, is something that we feel we have an obligation to do because uh, sticking your head in the sand and pretending everything's okay is not going to fix anything. And everything that uh, happens in the environment, at least these days, seems to have some repercussions back to jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I don't think it was always the case, right, that workers um, were necessarily interested in environmental issues or embraced environmental issues. In fact, I think... Uh, just you know, surveying the media, paid newspapers, magazine articles, um, there seems to be a clear divide, or at least there there was a clear divide um, between the interests of workers and the interests that environmental activists have pointed out. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and and uh, we've seen those conflicts uh, years back where we had, uh, for instance, people activists chaining themselves to. Uh, equipment and barring uh, access of workers to get into job sites uh, where there was some politically uh, sensitive issues, and and we've worked hard to say to uh, to those activists, to the community at large, that uh, workers are not the enemy here. Uh, I like to coin the phrase: uh, "You can hate the job, but don't hate the worker." And uh, because at the end of the day, workers do truly care about what's happening to their environment, how that's impacting on their families, their children. And so we've worked really hard to say, look, we all together uh, can make a difference or force a difference in the policies of the government and the actions of corporations. And the worker that's going to work to simply collect a paycheck is not your enemy. And, And we've been fairly successful in doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in my research, I've, I've learned actually that scholars have shown that the split between workers and environmentalists is in the interest of the corporate owners, of course. And so the divide and conquer strategy um, is very much in the interest of, you know, the capitalist uh, corporate owners and not in the interest of the rest of us. So, so good for you for, for kind of you know, developing this course and and raising consciousness among your workers. I mean, do you feel like you're alone in this, or um, are other people in other unions doing this as well? Uh, no, so the, the great thing of that is many other unions have embraced the issues. Uh, uh, for instance, the, the United Steelworkers, who, uh, again, a lot of their jobs are impacting on the environment and the manufacture of steel products, uh, they fully understand as well that um, not only is there an impact on the environment, but uh, if there's any changes, it's going to impact workers. Uh, the Canadian Labour Congress, which brings together uh, the affiliations of some three and a half million workers across Canada, uh, we we uh, work together on environmental initiatives. And uh, the one statement that we've made very clear to uh, the country and to the government is that workers are united in the fight uh, to protect the climate and to move progressively forward on climate change issues. Mm-hmm. So if I, as a worker, as a union member, had walked into this course this past week, Climate Change and Your Job, what would I have um, learned? What would I have done this whole past week? Well, well the real, the, uh, one of the real purposes of, of actually uh, putting together an educational program 
is to provide uh, workers with a critical eye on many of the things that they've either read in the media or uh, have been taught uh, in in the past, and, and for them to really take an, an analytical look at uh, those things. A, a clear example is is the seemingly uh, uh, distrust or or the opposition to wind turbines. You know, clean renewable energy source and uh, and we've had some great debates and that is the purpose of these courses to have workers in an open forum to talk about what their perception is and then perhaps uh, showing them the facts and seeing if they're interested in a different perspective so it's quite exciting when you get a, a group of people together in a safe environment where they can speak their mind and really openly debate and talk about the issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I understand also that the instructors actually are um, other union members. Yeah, and then a classic uh, uh, thing that we do is we believe workers should be talking to and, and uh, teaching other workers. They, they have the experience. They've uh, been through much of the issues that we're going to debate in the classroom. So, uh, we have always had workers training workers uh, so that we know how to relate uh, to these people and understand what their issues are. Mm-hmm. And of course, this particular course on climate change fits into a larger program that your union is offering, which is labor education. So there are a whole range of courses available to your members, right? Yeah, so uh, again, and this, is, uh, this has been said many, many times, but uh, obviously knowledge is power and we need to give those tools, that knowledge base to our members, uh, not only when they're discussing these particular issues with their employer, but as a progressive union, we also encourage uh, that our members get involved in lobbying politicians, whether that be at the municipal level uh, right up to the federal level, uh, because again, you know, our governments are supposed to react to the concerns of the people of the country, and so we empower our members with that knowledge so that they can feel comfortable and talk about the issues that are concerning them and their families. Mm. And what is your sense is the um, reaction in the environmental movement to um workers, you know, learning more about environmental issues. Is it positive? Yes, and that's greatly, uh, that's greatly changed. I mean, it, you know, the, the conflicts that were there, uh, I'll say decades ago, uh, seem to have been swept away. Uh, on the environmental activist side, they understand that they need workers. Uh, we represent a whole lot of people. Uh, they need that. They need our unity. And, uh, our political ability uh, when we speak as one big organization to advocate for change. And on the other side, uh, labor understands that, you know, these, these environmental organizations, the, the people that work within them, are very much experts in their field. And uh, so when we have a question or we need a better understanding, it's absolutely fantastic to be able to pick up the phone and talk to those experts and and uh, get a true sense of what the issue is. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so 
I can't help, you know, as a journalist to to add a little bit of a controversy into this conversation with you here, though. And that's about your union president, Jerry Diaz, who last year was found to have donated money to Kelly Leach's campaign. And of course, we all know Kelly Leach is running for the conservative leadership. And she's come out with statements that would seem to be at odds, you know, with the social justice role that Unifor has embraced. So my question for you, Ken, is what support are you getting from your union leadership in pushing the environmental agenda? Is it all straightforward or, uh, you know, are there some frictions within your own union here? Um, no, I would say that there's, uh, there's no friction. I mean, the one thing that people do have to understand, though, is, again, our, um, our, our number one role is to protect our members' jobs. So where there may seem to be a a uh, a conflict or where there may seem to be that uh, a union is not the most strongest environmental uh, organization is that we have to look at how things are done through a labor lens and uh, that means that sometimes we have to take a slower approach that means that sometimes we have to sit down and try to strategize because the one thing that we don't want to do is uh, make a move that uh, it, in uh, four or five years down the road is going to change something in the labor movement and, and people are going to be put out of work. So we know that things can be done progressively and they can be done in a labor perspective that, if done right, not only will save jobs but create jobs. So. Uh, it, you know, from the outside looking in, sometimes uh, people are a bit curious on the movements that we make. But again, uh, there's a strategy in place there, and it, it it means that we are working forward. We are committed. Uh, we just have to be careful how we do that. Mm-hmm. So you're moving more towards green energy sector jobs, right? Yes. Yeah, so again, as the forming of uh, Unifor, uh, when when our two former unions came together. Uh, so on the CAW side, you know, we had uh, very much in the representation of automakers, for instance, and, and aerospace workers. On the CEP side of things, a lot of those workers were in forestry, they were in oil and gas. And uh, so those, uh, those are all products that uh, Canadian people have become very reliant on. And, uh, things are not going to change overnight. So uh, green energy is certainly a, a progressive way to go. It's going to take some changes to the infrastructure of our municipalities and our country as a whole. So, again, some people may have a bit of uh, uh, frustration that things aren't happening as quickly as they would like, but uh, the, we have to plan these things out so that t- the changes are for the betterment of everybody. Mm -hmm. And what challenges do you see with your fellow union members? I mean, you were talking earlier about um, helping them to become more critically um, informed about, you know, various issues of the environment as well. Um, What are the challenges that you see with um, workers? What what kind of hinders them um, in terms of maybe 
you know, understanding the issues or moving forward or, or accepting that climate change is real? I mean, do you see any issues there? Um, so what we found is, is most people do believe that when you have 90, 98% of all scientists saying that climate change is real and has been caused by human factors, uh, most of our folks uh, understand that. Again, their number one concern is how are we going to change that and how are they going to continue uh, to earn a living wage and uh, is there a true opportunity if there is going to be a transition, uh, for instance, you know, Ontario moving out of using coal to provide energy, uh, I think that was fairly successful in transitioning workers into other operations and, and other opportunities. Uh, but we, uh, we find that workers more often than not are not in denial of climate change. You don't have to be a scientist to know that things are changing, but uh, how are we going to do that in a progressive way? So those discussions that we have, and again, some of the real radical stuff that is put out there from the climate deniers, uh, I won't uh, say that everybody uh, doesn't believe that, but again, the opportunity to have a forum of debate and to talk calmly and sensibly about the issues uh, the, the happy thing is, is that some of those people that may have that alternative view most often than not walk away with a different perspective and a different understanding of the issue. And, and I'm interested in you as a person, Ken. So how, how were you first sensitized to environmental issues? Well, uh, my, my career back uh, when I first began in the union was, was really directed to health and safety. And, um, you know, we do, I think, a fantastic job protecting the health and safety of our members in the workplace to ensure that they go home uh, the same way they came to work. But uh, we started to look at, uh, or I started to look at the larger picture, which was the environment, which impacts the safety of everyone. And uh, uh, I, was, I was interested in that and wanting to see if we could make a bigger societal change. Uh, and then that was influenced by a couple of things. So I originally lived in Windsor, Ontario, uh, and when I started to look at things, we had some of the highest cancer incidence rates in the entire country, and uh, that was unfortunately proven to me when my own mother passed away with cancer at the age of 50. So, um, you know, those were the determining factors that I said, look, if there's something much more impacting on people's health than just what happens inside the workplace, and we have to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry about your mother. Um, all right, so what, what about the future? Where are you going to go with uh, all this? Well, so the, the exciting thing is that, uh, uh, again, with the change uh, in government uh, with Trudeau, is that uh, we moved away from a Harper government that pretty much denied and did everything to block actions on climate change to Trudeau opening the door. We have, as uh, labor organizations, been invited into participating with the climate, uh, the climate change or the climate parties meetings that took place in Paris in, in uh, 2015, and then Marrakesh, Morocco, uh, this past year. So uh, Canada is back in the game, and labor has been invited to the table to talk. So that gives us the opportunity to bring 
a worker perspective to bring an average citizen perspective to the discussion and there's a lot of excitement in that that um, uh, these these decision makers these policy makers are listening to our concerns now so when we move forward we can feel that that'll be done in a way that will be uh, protective and safe for the working people of the country mm-hmm. sounds good all right thank you Ken Bondi for speaking with me this morning thank you so much Take care. Take care. Bye. Ken Bondi is the National Coordinator for Health, Safety, and the Environment at the Canadian Union, Unifor. He spoke to me by phone from Edmonton. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Christina, and uh, to Ken Bondi as well for joining us. We're going to take our uh, slightly later than intended uh, break, but that's just the reality of live radio, folks. That's okay. And we're going to be right back in just a minute with Tim Nash uh, to talk about the Sustainable Investment Fair and more. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of your <clears throat> excuse me, very wonderful and appreciated community radio partners internationally uh, and our podcast audience and all of our wonderful partners and everybody else. So we're going to take a music break now, and Kai is going to tell us what we're going to listen to. All right. Good morning, everyone. Today we're going to be listening to Always with Next of Kin. listening to the green majority we are back you're listening to the green majority here we had a quick intro sorry for the just joined the show this morning folks but that's how that's how it goes on live radio sometimes so we we know who tim is we met him earlier uh in case you're just tuning in now tim is a sustainable economist long uh running guest on this program uh and dear friend may i say as well yeah and a token economist on the show token from, economist. from time to time yeah uh, more friend than economist. No, uh, no. So, uh, Tim, you're also a co-member at the Center for Social Innovation. We Absolutely. work in the same space, but not together uh, quite frequently. Yep. And you're on the show today because you ran an event at CSI yeah. yesterday called the Sustainable Investment Fair. Let's jump right in. What is yeah, it? Yeah, it was great. Um, so, I mean, still sort of hard to put into words. I feel I'm feeling a little bit uh, almost hungover from the energy. I didn't drink anything, but just when you're on your feet talking to people for about six hours, you know, by the end of it, my feet were sore, my throat was shot and uh, I just want to go go home go to bed but it was it was phenomenal um, the the turnout we had was remarkable um, I'd done a, a sort of a, a good investment fair about three years ago at CSI Regent Park when that location just opened up it was one of the first events there and we packed the place and you know I had it with speeches and different things and and but really the the message that I got from folks is they just wanted to talk to the different organizations. Um, so this time around, I decided no speeches. I stretched it out and made it from 3 p.m. till 9 p.m. so people could kind of come at their leisure. And, and I had 10 different 
uh, impact investment organizations um, around, and it was basically, yeah, like a farmer's market for community bonds. So there were organizations there that were uh, uh, renewable energy co-ops. We had a few of them, uh, like SolarShare and CED Energy and a life co-op. There's a a shared space in Guelph called 10 Carden, which is looking to upgrade, very similar following the model that the Center for Social Innovation did, which is that um, they proved their business model. They got a huge waiting list. They wanted to go to a bigger space to have a larger co-working space to accommodate more social entrepreneurs and nonprofits, and um, rather than paying rent at a bigger building, uh, what Ten Carden is doing is raising $1 million through community bonds to pay for the down payment and renovations on the building um, that will allow them to upgrade. And then, you know, from a nonprofit perspective, how great is it rather than paying rent every single month? Now you're in a situation where you own the whole building and maybe, you know, people are your tenants are paying you rent. And that, you know, that's that's a, a sort of a financially sustainable business model. So, you know, doing the community bond to sort of kick that off, it was great having them there. A uh, number of different incredible organizations uh, were presenting, but all with unique ways of being able to invest your money, earn a good financial return, um, but also feel really good about what you're doing and sort of getting those warm fuzzies, knowing that you're investing in your local economy. And so there was a bit of a gamification aspect here, and it was yeah. to get people to think about what they were doing. So describe that, but also sure. talk about like why, like why is that thinking about what they're doing? Why is that revolutionary? Sure. So, so really, my my change theory is that it's not about assets. Uh, it's not about sort of these large pools of money that that switch. Uh, I mean, while while the um, Ken was on earlier talking about Unifor, I was thinking, oh, I wonder about Unifor's pension. Are they assessing the the carbon risk? And you know, when I first started my business, that was my goal to go after those really big fish, and and trying to get them to shift these billions of dollars of assets. But what I've realized is that the barrier isn't money. It's actually a psychological barrier that people just simply don't think about this. Mm. And whether it's investment committees that there, it's very ingrained. They have a very strong status quo bias. But even in just everyday people, like most people just don't think about how they can invest their money for good mm. and the impact of, of those investments. So this was a really tangible way. I wanted to sort of go beyond the choir and really try to reach out and through the channels, um, you know, to, to traditional personal financial community. Um, but obviously anyone who heard about it, who was interested, um, could come out. And, and really uh, the game that we played is that as people came in, they got $3 million. So I had these fake sort of monopoly money, million dollar bills, and you'd get three of them and you'd have to go around and decide which organization um, you wanted to invest with. And to give you the insight in terms of the, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to uh, uh, behavioral economics, which Mm. is this intersection between the psychology and economics. And, you know, what I realized is that by giving people fake money, what, what we're doing is we're priming them to think about these things as actual investments. So as they're going around to the different tables, they're evaluating it as as they would as if they were investing a million dollars. So, okay, you know, uh, I'll go up to CoPower and, okay, I'm funding uh, uh, energy efficiency retrofits, um, you know, so here a million dollars, 5% per year. Okay, what's that return on my million dollars, right? Can then evaluate, well, what's the CO2 reduction on that million dollar investment? And really hoping to ask these questions to figure out, you know, where can I get a good financial return and and where can I do good with my money? And and that part of it is is this idea of psychologically priming people, A, to ask those questions, 
But B, I, you know, all the studies have shown that if you get someone to do something once, that that's the barrier, is getting them to do it once. Um, but if they do it once, then they're much more likely to do things again. And so I figure if I can get someone to hand over a million dollars of fake monopoly money, then it's much more likely that they're going to hand over $1,000 or $10,000 of real money. I've spent some time. Oh, sorry, I know Sabina has a question to you, but I, I've spent a little bit of time in, in retail. And one of those, one of the tricks that somebody taught me, I always found retail to be soul sucking. So I, I never sure. liked this. But I remember that uh, that one of the things that one of my colleagues used to tell me when I was being trained as like a you know early twenty year old, yeah, uh, was that idea that you have like a hundred times more likely to sell something if the person puts it in their hand. Sure. Right? So if you so get, get them, them to sit on the it couch up and feel it, or if you, or yeah. if you get them to try on Experience the shirt, you've exponentially increased the likelihood Absolutely. they'll buy it. So there's an aspect there too. hundred percent. And that's, that's really the idea is that, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a psychological barrier that I think most people are up against. They haven't thought about this as an asset class. They haven't thought about this as part of their retirement plan. And so really getting them to come and experience it and have fun with it and meet, you know, all the different organizations. There was just a really cool energy. Sabina? Uh, I was I was actually really interested about what you said before, where you were talking about pension funds sure. and large institutional investors. You said that you you wanted to kind of change the way that they behave. Yeah, I I have found that those types of investors are extremely risk averse. Do you think that yeah. green green energy or green bonds or whatever type of sustainable sustainable um, investing do? Does that still seem like it's really risky? I'm, to I'm done with them. Okay. Honestly, I'm done. <laughs> I, I pivoted my business model okay. four years ago. And I mean, if Unifor came to me and said, how do we, you know, de uh, decarbonize our portfolio? I'd be at that in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm done trying to convince those big fish. The reason being the way they're managed is with an investment committee. And on that invest committee, there are always a few people, um, you know, generally wealthy white men who have been there for a long time, who have, you know, 40, 50 years experience in the financial industry. And they're the ones for which that perceived risk of whether it's green investing or whether it's these community bonds, it's that perceived risk is strongest with them. Because they've been doing this for 40 years. And it served them well, and they've never done this before. And the idea of doing it now is scary to them. You got to understand, uh, you know, the Toronto Stock Exchange, the Canadian market was built on energy and mining. If you were a global mining company and you wanted to raise money, you came to Toronto, and there was a time you could walk down the street, you know, with flyers saying, "I've got a new mine in, you know, Guatemala or wherever," and people would throw money at you. Um, that, that was a real challenge. There was a real struggle funding junior mining companies and Canada's financial system solved it. We were willing to take that long-term perspective to get those returns. Uh, so for me, Canada is the ideal place for us to solve these green energy problems. Long-term issues that require upfront capital before you get that, that's the problem that we're really good at solving. But the problem is that we have all these people who've been in the industry for so long and their bread and butter has been, you know, oil and gas and mining. So they feel threatened and they feel defensive so that when we start talking about carbon risk or we start talking about community bonds, they get defensive mm. and they tend to shut down. And there's always going to be that one or two people on that investment committee that are just – it's just good luck trying to convince them. And they hold so much sway on that committee. And so for me, I just – I got tired of banging my head against that wall. Yeah. And so now, like when I think about the people that came to the fair – 
right? And it was the widest range. I think the youngest, there was a guy there, you know, told me he'd been reading his, my blog. He's probably 17, 18 years old, TFSA, asking these questions, you know, want to invest in renewable energy, that. Meanwhile, juxtaposed with, you know, for the first two hours from 3 till 5 p.m., we probably had about 150, you know, seniors in retirement, approaching retirement, you know, with a lot of money, looking for low-risk things, you know, how do they deploy that capital? But they also want to leave something, you know, the whole point now is they realize that they want to leave something for, for their children and for their grandkids and, and wanting to do something about that. And these are people that don't need to be convinced. These are people that are looking for renewable energy options. They're looking for impact investments, how to do good in the world. Uh, they just haven't been able to find the, the products, the solutions. There's because so many of these are run by nonprofits, right? They don't tend to have marketing budgets. Yeah. You know, if I were to talk about Oiko Credit Microfinance, like they're an incredible organization with this awesome microfinance uh, GIC product, but they're not household names. They don't have those budgets. So for me, it's really by, you know, understanding that the, my goal isn't about shifting money anymore. It's about shifting mindsets. And I can tell you that, you know, yesterday out of the 350 people who came, I would say the majority of them, this was a pretty new thing for them. But now they got to play the game. They got to experience it. They got to think about, hmm, does this make sense for me to put 5% of my money, 10% of my money, you know? No, you don't want to put all of your money into an asset class like this. But with all the uncertainty around Trump right now, Right. Like, I think people are understandably a little bit skittish about the stock market. It's been doing well since Trump got in. And, you know, it's crazy. little feelings of uneasy. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's a little tricky right now. Bond markets are in the tank. Like, interest rates are so low that, that really, you know, this, this is a really nice way to be able to earn, you know, more money than you would with government bonds, um, you know, in a stable way that's going to be uncorrelated to stock markets, meaning if there is a crash, these aren't going to crash as well, right? And at the same time, supporting your local economy. Um, so it really, it makes financial sense. It makes sort of ethical sense. Uh, the problem is just people don't know about it. It's not a thing yet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with this event, it was really about uh, getting this message out there that there are some really good options available here in, in Ontario, here in Canada. Um, and, and let's look at them and let's think about, you know, what, what it feels like and what it, 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 uh, that experience is like to actually put our money where our values are. Yeah. And it's one of the, um, one of the other interesting aspects, I mean, what you, what you started with was, you know, that you said you started your career trying to go after these big funds and now you're not as worried. Yeah. There's a, there's another effect there, which I know, you know, but you didn't point out. So I will, which sure. is that turns out some of those individuals who are concerned about their own investments right. also happen to work for Unifor or Absolutely. also happen to work here. And Absolutely. so if you convince them on a personal level and more and more of those personal levels, right. then there's more people in that board meeting saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, we need to adapt. This is actually not true. I've invested my own money and I'm doing well. Maybe yeah. we could move, maybe it's time to move this up to the big league. And this is it. Like, you know, when we heard about, obviously there's a need for education around climate change and around environmental issues. But I would argue just as important is that there's a huge need for education around financial issues and this idea of financial literacy. And, and so that for me, you know, if you don't know where your money is going and whether you're spending it or whether you're investing it, but like that's a problem. And so that for me, it's part of it is, is that the more people look at this and understand the risk of a carbon bubble, right? And what does that look like if, you know, you've got all this exposure uh, um, to fossil fuel industries 
and you know all of a sudden we decide that we're actually going to keep with the the Paris climate agreement and we're actually going to leave you know what is it 80% of reserves underground that's going to have a very quick impact on those share prices so the more people look at this and understand the financial aspect um, but uh, as well as understand the, the environmental, and this is what I'm saying, is that we can't have this false dichotomy anymore um, between the economy and the environment. Like, they are so connected. And to think that, you know, one over the other, like I heard a hilarious stat, but obviously, you know, Trump's been championing the coal mining industry, and that there are more people employed at Arby's restaurants in the U.S. than there are people in the coal sector. So, like, think about, you know, sort of those... Those, you know, sort of declining jobs there, think about the new jobs that are opening up that are available. And obviously, some regions are going to be hit hard. So, you know, if you're listening to me from from Alberta right now, like I feel for that some regions are definitely going to be more impacted by this. Right. But the reality is that the, the, the economy is changing. So for me, it's all about getting ahead of those trends. And from a, a, a financial perspective, you know, that understanding that you don't really want to have your money invested in the old economy, right? You want to at least start to be strategic about making sure that it's invested in the new economy. Well, uh, we'll, uh, we'll have to leave it there, Tim. You're going to stick around a little bit longer. But, uh, of course, we could always talk to you quite a bit longer than the time that we have. I was just yeah. thinking, you know, one of the concerns people don't talk about enough, though, is that uh, if we have this revolution in solar energy, and we uh, sure, there will be some solar energy jobs, but the uh, Superfund cleanup jobs, uh, those are going to get – that sector is going to get decimated. Sure. Well, <laughs> except uh, there, there's a lot more jobs there first. There's a lot That's of cleanup true. to do. Uh, I do want to point out that it was such a success. I think we're going to do the fair again. Awesome. So looking at about six months' time, frame. Also thinking about sort of the Guelph, Kitchener, Waterloo region, mm -hmm. that there are a number of different sort of Mennonite country there has been really strong and a real leader in the space. So being able to, to get into that region as well. So if people do want to stay up to date, uh, I would suggest they go to my website, sustainableeconomist.com mm -hmm. and sign up for my free newsletter. And that's where I'll be doing sort of any updates. You'll get my blog post, but also, uh, you know, save the dates and any information about more of these good investment fairs. Because I saw this as a pilot project, and I'd say it was a successful one. Awesome. So let's roll it out. Yeah, and yeah, I said if you're not in Toronto or not even in Ontario, you can uh, you can reach out to Tim. And uh, part of the reason we have him on the show is because he never comes in here nor anywhere else sells puppy dog tails, right? If if things are good and they're also like there's also an argument for it, you'll do it. And if it's you know if it sounds nice but it doesn't, there's no real traction there, then you're not yeah. going to tell people to do it. And that's my job is is the pipe dreams and puppy dog tails. Uh, okay, so that's it for Tim's section. But he'll stick around. Maybe he'll jump in. Who knows? But we're going to go to Megan now for our second and final music break. So for our second music break, we will be listening to Neil Young. This is Heart of Gold.
We are back, live back on the radio, back into the home stretch. We've only got about 12 minutes, but uh, Spina is very succinct. So here we go, Spina, your section. Uh, take it away. I hope I can be succinct, but um, this is kind of on, on the same theme of policy change and uh, large large uh, institutions and what, what we can do to kind of change that. So recently there's been an increase in natural disasters exasperated by climate change, and it has put a huge strain on the global community and on people in general. So this first story was written in The Guardian about famine and how it is currently looming in four countries, Yemen, Somalia, Nigeria, and South Sudan, with millions of people whose livelihoods depend on agriculture and their environment are at the brink of a full-blown famine as bad as in Somalia a few years ago, which led to a death toll over 250,000 people. So these types of humanitarian crises are increasing, and um, the aid communities are asking for more money than ever before. However, they're also met with wide criticism about the way that their resources are used in these huge bureaucratic settings. So only, only reaching people after the fact, when people are suffering the most. So the first question I kind of have for both of you is... Um, what do you think about climate change, the link of climate change to full-blown humanitarian disasters, as well as your thoughts on funding and resource use by organizations such as the UN or Oxfam or um, all of these, or even governments as well? However, before we get there, I wanted to bring up a second related article um, on unusual weather patterns in Peru, which have been caused by a stronger than normal El Nino. In Peru, climatologists are also reluctant to say that these huge floods and mudslides are related to climate change because this has been seen previously in 1921. However, this uh, this change in climate is said to be the culprit of uh, for in, in extreme weather in Peru, such as droughts, extreme rainfall, and finally mudslides. But these these are happening at shorter periods uh, shorter periods of time and right after another. So this kind of bringing back to the question is um, the criticism that we see on, on government policy on climate change and adaptation. What can we do about that? And are we looking, should we continue what we're doing, which is reactionary humanitarian aid, throw a couple of billion to feed, to feed people and not actually give them any other thing, but some nutrition packets and uh, then get out of there when when it's you know okay we fed you for a month or you know increase policies in climate change and getting the global community to be involved in these issues to 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 say that this isn't an issue only in our country but what we do here is going to affect you know Sudan or is going to affect um Somalia or Nigeria or whatever because uh, if climate change is happening it's happening everywhere and it's going to increase already at risk countries so um. Holy loaded question, Batman. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, we should continue yeah. what we're doing. No, um, I, no, I think yeah. So I think the I think the question is, you know, what what is the argument for that, and what does that look like? What the, well, the argument for that, I mean, as as you just sort of spelled out, is uh, that that we don't we all live on the same planet, and it's, we can't pretend, you know, if this sort of nationalist streak from. Trump, even though, I mean, policy irrelevant, but as far as like the talking points is, well, let's take care of us first. Uh, and then when we're fine, then we can reach out and help other people. And I think, I mean, that idea towards foreign policy, I think, was is extinguished in the halls of academia quite some time ago. It's very popular among people. Uh, I won't try and put pigeonhole those people and put them into boxes, but Many of them are Trump voters. Read from that what you will. But I don't know. It's I think it's this bent of uh, – and Tim, I think you'd have an angle on, on what I'm yeah. sort of trying to get at, and even, just from the, even just from what you were just talking about, which is the financial thing, which is, mm -hmm. hey, I'd love to do great things with my money. I'd, I'd love to donate all this money yeah. to charity, but I only have one car. Right. 
So, okay, so uh, what I'll, you know, where I want to start is to go back to the start of the show is to talk about a really cool economist that I wish had a stronger voice, um, who is, uh, are you familiar with the Stern Report? Yes. So you've heard about the Stern Report. Mm -hmm. The the All you need to know about the Stern Report is very simply this, that uh, uh, pro proactive cost on climate change is going to cost us 2% of global GDP. Okay, so that's the cost. That's a lot of money. 2%. Hey, I don't hear it. If we do nothing... <laughs> We're looking at uh, uh, costs of 5% to 20% of global GDP annually. That sounds higher. That Much higher, <laughs> right? Like anywhere from two and a half times higher like to, mm. to like mm, may, order of magnitude higher. Mm. So really from a purely economic argument, like it makes uh, absolutely no sense to do nothing. The question is just, okay, that 2% and how, what do we spend it on and how do we do that? And so what I want to point out, sadly, though, is, again, sort of the, the, the structural barrier. This is that these are global numbers. And when you look at a regions, regions that are more dependent on uh, – that are going to lose more than that 2%, mm. right, that, that, where that's going to take the biggest bite. In Canada, it's Alberta. In, you know, in the U.S., it's coal country. And that understanding that, you know, that, that there are those changes. And so for the first time, we're presented with this global challenge. Mm. But the UN is useless as a global organization without the ability to tax. So really now we're in a position where like here in Ontario, we have a regional government that is taking action and putting a price on carbon and starting to do that sort of that trade off, you know, pay 2% to avoid losing up to 20%. Um, but that, you know, now their responsibilities are not global, are not, you know, uh, looking at those countries. So we have that structural issue where, you know, it's, it's, it's really quite a challenge for how do we address a global challenge using local governments. Mm. And all I would say is my hope is that Donald Trump is like the, an, an alien in the sense that I've always been waiting for an alien to come and unite humanity because mm. that's what all the movies tell me is that an alien shows up and all of a sudden we're one world and humanity bounce together. So my optimism is that Donald Trump is our alien and that with Donald Trump's opposition that it is going to force the rest of the world to come together um, and, and be able to, to create uh, some type of political structure that can address these global issues. It's interesting reference you made that because he does actually kind of remind me from the aliens from Mars Attacks. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, Samina. No, the, what, I'm, what I'm actually thinking about more and more recently is, okay, what about, so we're trying to, we're trying to put these funds, this 2% of the global GDP towards climate change mitigation adaptation, whatever, but you cannot measure something that didn't occur. So you put right. this 2% of GDP yeah. into mitigation strategies yeah. and you say, this is what we did, like nothing happened. And totally. people are like, oh, well, I, like, what did yeah. I put my money to? But yeah. it was that thing that didn't happen that you put right. your money to. So it's kind of hard to measure. You can say, yeah, we saved 30 million lives through these like humanitarian right. aid efforts. And it's true like, that's reactive. like numbers and, yeah. and we did it. Yeah, and like, true. you know, so it's, how do you tell people that this thing that won't happen is actually yeah. better and you should fund your money towards this thing that will not happen because yeah. if it does happen i think that's a, I, I don't know i think that's a marketing question yeah i really think it is i mean if if you if you were going to do that right say say i would say just in this magic fairyland uh i was you know prime minister and this was and i had some invented some new party and and you know taken nobody thought we'd get a single vote and suddenly i'm prime minister yeah. and it was on this basis it's all marketing and this is the number one thing that i criticize Trudeau for constantly, uh, which is 
Like, you got to pick your fights and then fight your fights. And yeah. he picks his fights, but I don't feel like he fights his fights. And so that's what you do. You do constant talking points. You know how much money we didn't waste? You know how much all this stuff – we would have had to cut this program. We would have had to cut this program because this is what this would have cost. Right. And we didn't. And and maybe that's not going to sell with everybody. I'm not saying right. it's a foolproof strategy. Sure. But it's it's the only way you could pay, possibly, so, I think, defend that. What do you think? The, well, the way I want to – the way I pick up on that, on the sort of the PR question is like, you know, the, the branch of government that's done such a good job at getting unlimited sources of money for, you know, preventing things is the military. Mm. That if we look at this through the lens of uh, defense and through this idea of protection, Mm. right? Like the reason we spend so much money on military, on whatever, is ideally things don't happen, right? Like it's like hiring a bouncer for a bar. You know, if if everything goes well, like that person, that does nothing. If everything goes well, our military remains unused and gets rusty, right? And just because it's it's not there. So for me, it's about I think kind of reframing this idea of of protection, um, and and the using maybe some of the PR tactics from military um, to understand that really the 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 what we're talking about are and goals of our military system, which is to protect, which is to defend, which is to preserve. Um, and that, that understanding that, that they've had almost, you know, certainly in the U.S., almost unlimited budgets. Here in Canada, it's very different. We do have debate on these things. But they still, you know, if we talk about 2% of global GDP, what was that figure from NATO that, you know, Donald Trump was saying European, right? It was 2%. Yeah. Right, that right. That that's right. the commitment there. So really, like, it's just, it's, in my mind, there's a real parallel there. Right. The, and there are therefore lessons to be learned. So you just made me think of an, an excellent bonus show question. And the reason I'm saying it's a bonus show is because we have two minutes left. So unfortunately, we're, we're out of time, but uh, it, hopefully you can stick around just a couple sure. more minutes. Yeah. Uh, we'll bleed this into the bonus show. My my question, which I'll tell you what it is uh, now, is uh, one of my things all around like, you know, this this idea of you know, sharing the earth and that we need to institutionalize that. And that that's a way to sort of make sure that, that people are thinking globally is we need institutions that operate globally. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, what would the, is, is the idea of having a global single global currency, a good or bad idea? Ooh, we'll talk ooh. about that in a minute. Uh, but I think you, before we get there, we'll close the show with, I think you just isolated the, the most important part of the, the problem, Tim. If the, those, you said security and military, these are things that project strength. People, for better or worse, it's just simply reality that often if two candidates seem approximately qualified, whether or not they actually are, if they seem approximately qualified and one of them comes on really strong and aggressive and hyper stereotypically masculine, they're going to win. How maybe – I don't think we're going to change people's feelings towards that sort of natural liking strength. So how do we make – preventing environmental things seem strong. We solved that. I think we solved the whole kit and caboodle right there. Fair enough. So why don't we end on that? Thank you so much for your time, Tim and Sabina. If you're listening on the radio, that's all the time we have. If you're listening on the podcast, we'll be right back with the bonus show. Check that out at greenmajority.ca. Thank you so much for listening to Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. Have a good green week, folks, and take care. That's it for the regular program. We continue the conversation with uh, really something I've been wanting to ask him about for a long time, which is uh, why do my fanciful, super crazy left-wing idealist uh, ideas not work? Well, they sort of do, but we discuss why they're not easy in the bonus show. Enjoy. If you like this sort of conversation, you can contribute to it by being a member. You can do that at greenmajority.ca and click the link or just go straight to Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash greenmajority and sign up today. (laughs) 
So we're in the bonus show now. I have to get to lunch. Tim also has to get lunch. We're not having lunch together. We both have lunch, though. So we're going to keep it real tight. Kai has also joined us again today. Uh, you remember her from our hilarious talks about things such as sex robots and futuristic environmental problems yeah, that, we dream about. That was of a good episode. Yeah. yeah. Did you hear the, the, the right. asteroid mining? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was really fun. So uh, Kai may or may not jump in. Tim, I, I have these fanciful futuristic ideas sometimes. Sure. And, and you your number one value, I think, to me personally, not to yeah. the audience, but to me personally, is to rein in my wild and fanciful ideas so I'm why happy to keep you grounded yes thank you um like a balloon that you just have one hand on uh so <laughs> so i you know i often think of i let my imagination wander and run free and wild um and then i like to run things by you to get a reality check and so the one thing was it just occurred to me today and i've thought about this repeatedly wanting to ask you on, on just at all and we right. have the opportunity to do it uh, while we're recording for once yep. uh w- how much uh why you know why don't we have a world uh, a world single economy and part sure. of the reason i think about this just for context before i let you go for a minute is that you know we've been hearing a lot i i, I immerse myself in tons of news not just the environment news and one of the things we've been hearing a lot is you know think there's a lot of talk about the u.s americans complaining about china you know rigging oh, yeah. their currency and all this stuff and it just keeps going why do we have different currencies right so why do we have different currencies? sure so absolutely so just to be clear we do have a global economy like that's a legit thing the reason we don't have a, a global currency is very simple uh it's because when you give up your currency you give up your autonomy for something called monetary policy and really, you know, monetary policy is just code word for being able to set interest rates and print more money, right? And those two things are very much linked. So the example I'm going to use is the euro because that's been the most modern example of when countries have come together under a single currency. And if you remember what Greece went through where they had a serious recession, um, the appropriate response, if that happened here in Canada, if we went through that type of situation, it would be no problem. We're going to increase money supply. We're going to, you know, effectively print money, even though it's not really printing money. It's, you know, um, sort of changing things on the computer. But And what we're going to do is we're going to effectively lower interest rates. And that's the traditional monetary policy response to a recession. Now, was Greece able to do that? Well, no, they weren't. Uh, they weren't allowed to print more money. And they weren't allowed to lower interest rates because they're part of the euro. And so those decisions get made by the European Central Bank. And the countries that have the biggest voice on the European Central Bank, which is going to, probably going to be France and Germany, did not want to print more money and did not want to lower their interest rates. Therefore, Greece kind of got screwed in that their recession was much longer than it would have been otherwise, right? So it's the type of thing where having that autonomy over your currency is so important because if you do get a regional shock to your economy, you can then have a regional response to that. And if you give, if, if you give up that, that single that, – or that, that, that currency, then you're giving up that autonomy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. Um, so I have a follow-up question, though. Yeah. Uh, so, like, part of the reason I'm thinking this from, and uh, one of the people I, I despise most on planet Earth besides Trump is Alex Jones. Okay. And Alex Jones oh, is Oh, you're bringing him one. into the room. Okay. No, I have to for a minute, just just because it-, it Be brief, please. I will. I'm not going to say anything. So one of the things that he, and a lot of those sort of crazy right-winger yeah. conspiracy theory type people have to talk about is the globalist, the globalist. And one of the things I actually learned about this morning was uh, that that's actually a code, it, meant by some people as actually a code word for anti-Semitism, which I 
Okay. Which is, anyway, that's a whole different thing. But before that complication, I just want to acknowledge that in case of any of our listeners were aware of that, that I am aware that some people mean that by that. But I'm not talking about it now. But I, in the sense of the not getting into that hideousness, uh, I'm a globalist in the sense that I think, you know, we have a world economy and I think we should be operating in one planet and that we should be looking for ways to to essentially like redu- remove borders in the sense that we continue to increasingly operate as a single unit. Sure. So hypothetically, uh, so say that was the case, could that not be offset? And I realize maybe this wouldn't happen, but just speaking in theory, uh, couldn't we have that and then say, well, if, you know, if Greece is getting really screwed over by p- economic policy that benefits most but not all, couldn't those people who are doing really well off that decision just sort of chip in and help out the people who are g- – do you know what I mean? Like, like I realize it's not realistic yeah, in the world we live just, in today. But. Right. And it's not so much just like that flow. Of, so, okay. So let me address two things. Let me address two things. One is this right-wing mantra of wealth redistribution. That so often when I talk about the idea of needing to do things on a global level or even just the idea of carbon taxation, uh, you know, I get trolls coming at me saying right away, oh, that's wealth redistribution. That's, oh, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to redistribute wealth. The reality is right now in our current economic system, wealth redistribution is happening. The problem is that the whole system is about taking money from poor people and also poor countries and any, anyone that's, that's sort of on the, the – that, that is in debt. Because think about this concept of debt. If you're in debt, if you have a credit card debt, what are you paying every month? Interest. Who do you pay that interest to? Who gets that money? Well, the people that own the debt. Who owns the debt? Rich people. So literally every single moment of every single day, of every single year, there is transfer of wealth happening right now as we speak. Money is being transferred from poor people to rich people. That is the natural flow of money in our current economic system. And I'm not, I'm not here to debate that and say that should be bad and to, we should get rid of debt, anything like that. No, that's the system that we have. So all I want to say is that now all of a sudden to have this conversation about, well, so, okay, if that's the reality, then wouldn't it make sense to have some redistribution where essentially people who are wealthy, who are benefiting from this current status quo system, that they get taxed at a higher rate and for that money to go towards poorer people, like for me, yeah, like that's how you get a flow of money in an ecosystem. Like think of it like a lake or like a river. Right. If all the water kept flowing into one area and accumulating there and getting bigger and bigger and bigger, all of a sudden you're going to have that place with all the water and no water anywhere else. We need it to cycle. Right. Right. And so this is the system. So now we get in the question of how should it be cycled? Right. And that, you know, that, that for me, there's such a simple solution. It's just it's mind numbingly simple, um, but it's called the Robin Hood tax. And this is a very simple tax on financial transactions or even you could do it on currency exchange, right? Because it's the type of thing where I believe every day $4 trillion gets exchanged in currency markets. Guess who's doing most of that currency exchanging? Rich people, right? Sure, you get the remittances. You get people, you know, who let's say they have family in Mexico. and They're working here in Ontario and they're sending money home. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying we should go after those people. I'm saying we should go after the financial sector that every day is betting on uh, uh, currency exchanges, that every day is buying things in one currency and selling things in another currency. And if we took the tiniest fraction, I believe the number that's been doing is like half of 1%. So 0.005. 
that that would then all of a sudden fund uh, global education. Uh, that would fund uh, uh, climate change mitigation and adaptation. That would fund basically like we would be in a situation where now it's not the scarcity mindset. You know, it's it's actually happening. And who gets hurt? And, and you know, uh, a lot of the people in the financial world would be aghast at this. And they say we would destroy liquidity in the marketplace and that, you know, we're going to reduce trading. I'm OK with that. If you're telling me that this is a hit to the algorithms, to the robots that are switching money back and forth, you know, in nanoseconds, I'm OK with those robots taking a little hit if it means that we can fund global education, climate change mitigation, and, and really whatever sort of, uh, um, you know, global uh, um, issues that we're facing that do affect all of us, um, but that often, like right now, the excuse is we don't have enough money to fix them. Right. And I think that that fits into my uh, and Kai, I'm going to go to I'm going to ask you a question in a minute just so you're ready. Uh, but uh, the, this fits into my like larger theme. And, and the word I've started to use recently, and, I re- and obviously I didn't make this up, but it's the word I've started to like very much recently is that this concept of Robin Hood tax fits very well into the, this thing that I'm now promoting, which is this idea of communalism, which is reined in capitalism. I, th- I think the fundamentally capitalism is a good system. I think part of the problem we have right now is that we don't operate in pure capitalism. We operate in a system where it's like capitalism but where the rules have been tweaked in certain people's favor sure. and where it's like yes people who you know come up with great ideas or innovate or, or you know benefit society come up with some new invention or some new technique or some really smart idea and really contribute to society I think they deserve to be rewarded for that but that there's a limit to how much people should be rewarded when we have people starving to death and when we have people who can't afford basic services and that it's, it's about putting a floor on what we're willing to accept in a modern society right. and saying that the people at the other end of that spectrum just have to deal with it because right. as a society we're simply not going to accept that people are starving to death or not going to accept that that people don't have enough to eat or don't have a food over their head or, or don't get a basic education that there's certain things that as a society we're simply not going to accept as as okay right so all, all i would say to that is you know and obviously i agree with you but you know the issue let's look at it we can talk about it here in the city of toronto you know, there is poverty. We look at the province of Ontario and look at sort of remote First Nations communities and the living conditions that they have there, you know, that we can't even sort this stuff out. Am I allowed to swear? In the bonus show, yeah. you can say whatever uh, So we're not want. even allowed to sort this shit out. <laughs> we're not able to uh, um, in our cities and in our province. Like think about how wealthy, how lucky we are here in Ontario as a province, you know, one of the top places in the world. And we don't have this shit sorted out. And that now you're asking me to say, well, let's let's we need to sort this out on a global scale. Like it's just I, I just want to point out that 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 it's a real that it's a real challenge. And I wholeheartedly think it's, it's something that we can embrace. What I'm hearing from you is that we should have a guaranteed minimum income mm-hmm. of a certain level and that should be the floor. And then what I'm also hearing from you is that we should have rather than a minimum wage, we should have a maximum wage, mm-hmm. which we as a society can determine. And that, you know, if you make more than that, like, yeah, you should be, you know, taxed at a rate pretty darn close to 100%. You know, again, a lot of people would have issue with that. I haven't thought about it. I don't know what I feel about that. But the idea of having a maximum wage, I'm open to that conversation. Right. Um, and, but really, the question is, you know, sort of the question is always in terms of guaranteed minimum income, any of these social safety nets, how do we fund it? And I think that we are in agreement that it's there, there are sort of mechanisms that we can use to ensure that the people that have benefited the most from our society, from our structure, from the system, um, you know, can pay more. 
Yeah. And I think there's two angles uh, to that as well. The, the, the first of it's the maximum income thing, which is saying like there's a, which is basically saying there's only there's only so much you could have possibly contributed to society and that yeah. the rest of it is sort of like loopholes. Yeah. And another one is that a lot of people like wealth begets wealth and people who exactly. just go hire somebody to I have a billion dollars. You can find the best accountant in the world and the best investor in the world. Yeah. And you can literally contribute zero to society for the rest yeah. of your entire life. Yeah. And and, you know, thousands of people are starving that that should be unacceptable so even if people reject the idea of a maximum income sure. that there are certain ways that you should just not be allowed to game the system and if you're not if what you're doing to earn your money is not contributing to society in any way you're just moving numbers around and nobody but you benefits right then that should be unacceptable but anyway we can have a really long conversation about that what i want to read it direct to kai on is we you've been our resident science expert you've been our resident woman on occasion uh i'm going to ask you as our resident young person here right now as far as these types of ideas uh, obviously you don't speak for any anyone but yourself, but you are the youngest person in the studio right now. Uh, as far as a generational th- thinking in it of idea, do you find these types of ideas uh, seem extreme to you? Do you think this, these types of things are something you think should happen, are realistic in our lifetimes? Are they pipe dreams? Or is this something that you think is realistic to actively work towards in your lifetime? And if not the idea I presented, is there something else? Well, I mean, I would definitely start off by saying that in terms of young people, I'm towards the left side of the spectrum. And I'm very aware of this because um, I spent a while living in the south of the states, so I was hyper aware of the fact that not everybody agrees with me. So, you know, when you come to university and you're surrounded by young people who share the same idea as you and you're, everything that you talked about is things that I believe are possible, and I'm surrounded by people who believe they are possible and who want to work towards that. But at the same time, I know that there's a lot of people who don't agree with that, so... I could say that the progr- like progressive young people are definitely going to push for this, but young people who fall towards the right side of the spectrum don't believe that the- these are priorities. They don't believe they're possible, and they definitely view it as sort of you know like a left wing dream that's not realistic. That's not going to happen. Well, the line is the line is often punishing success, right? Something yeah, and like exactly. And I mean, you know, the funny thing that I've seen is that what what's the hardest thing about sort of taxing the wealthy is that everyone believes that one day they're going to be wealthy. Yeah. (laughs) So, like, everyone thinks that one day they're going to be rich. So this idea of going after the rich, even though, like, literally we could be going after, like, the 0.1%, like, richest people. I saw a stat today where it's, like, there are eight people on the planet that have as much wealth as the bottom 50%. Like, the bottom – like, it's insane, the inequality. But it's, like, but one day I'm going to be that rich. I'm going to be that wealthy. And so, darn it, I will never vote for anything that's going to tax that because that's my dream. And like one day I'm going to be that rich. Despite the fact that the very rules they're, they're voting against are the very things likely preventing them from ever actually achieving that dream. It's, it's maddening. Now, I want to point out, and this is partially for the sake of comedy, but it's also a serious point, is that I have never and can never and to this day never will ever see myself as a rich person. And, and that there's a mindset that comes along with that, right? Like okay. I make choices that, well, I'm not going to – that's not something that's in my future. So right. that doesn't just inform my political opinions. Maybe if I thought that I would, maybe I would feel differently. Sure. I don't know. I'm not, I can't imagine what it's like to not be me. Um, but I also think that, that there – a lot of people would see that sort of as like, well, your your you know your your dreams are set too low. No, well, it's that like I've not I'm not spending my time trying to get a to you know to own a nice 
but nice like a super fancy penthouse and sure. and I put my energy elsewhere but that's like that also affects the choices that I make right and that affects my political choices that affects my my perspective and my and my worldviews and I think I and I've been criticized on that saying like you know you're you're selling yourself a bit uh, short in that by essentially limiting your own sense of success but at this point I'm so immersed in this is just my own perspective but I'm I'm so immersed in the damage that people who tend to achieve that dream tend right. to do that right. that I see that that even even wanting that seems poisonous to me. But that's that's my so own here's thing. here's the trap here's the trap. Let me lay it on you real quick. This is in the system that we are in. Uh, Max Weber talked about the iron cage. This is sort of way back philosophy, um, but it's this idea that we actually trap ourselves. So why do people want money? Why do people want to be rich? If you ask most people, what they're going to say is freedom. Uh, I, I have this question that I always ask new clients coming in. If you won the lottery tonight, you know, won a billion dollars, how would that change your life? What would you do tomorrow? Because it gives me really good insight in terms of, you know, how they think and what they need and would their life change drastically. And, you know, and with most people, it's just this, when you have money, it's like, it's just freedom. Right. But the reality is that when people have money, when people start earning these sort of, you know, higher income jobs, what do they do? They spend it and they get that penthouse. Well, now you have that penthouse. Well, guess what? You have to pay rent on that penthouse every month or a mortgage payment, whatever. Right. Now, all of a sudden you get those cars. Right. Um, you know, the biggest, I think, money hole is like people that want to buy a boat. Like for a long time, that was the thing. Like, I'm going to buy a yacht. It's like, well, the costs associated with that are insane. And so that as we kind of climb the, the social and economic ladder, as, as we, we get those promotions, what often tends to happen is that our expectations rise, our spending rises to the point where now you can't quit that high-paying job anymore. Because if you did, you'd have to give up your penthouse, you'd have to give up your yacht, right? Like heaven forbid. So really when you look at freedom and what that means from an economic perspective, it's really about living simply and reducing your expenses, because if you're okay with a simple, modest lifestyle, now you have freedom. Now, if you have a good job and you're providing good value, you can start to work less, right? But that we get so caught up on this level of income as our measure of success in society. And that's what traps us. Because as soon as you aspire to and desire and want that higher income, and that's the be all end all. Chances are you deserve it, so you deserve that penthouse and you deserve that, that, that vacation. You, that's what's trapping you. That's what's limiting your freedom more than anything else. So from my perspective, it's, it's really the question is how much is enough, right? And when I look at like some of the mega wealthy people, right, it's just – it's all about how much is enough. And we don't have a good answer to that question in our society and really the answer is limitless like it's never enough if you were, we were to look at this right in terms of pure capitalism there's never enough we can always have more growth grow 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 more 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 right but as we start to ask this question how much is enough um i think that's when we're going to realize holy crap like i have abundance in my life and if i'm okay with enough being a smaller amount that's what's actually going to give me freedom does right. that make sense? Yeah. And, and, and we're at uh, 18 minutes here, but uh, we're, uh, we started pretty quickly, actually. So we're do still doing pretty good for time. But Tim, you opened the door. So I'm going to wrap up with the door you opened. Uh -oh. uh, billion dollars. What are you going to do with it, starting with you? 
Oh, uh, so I would I would invest that in a foundation. Um, so I would invest that money, and so that the that billion dollars would never get eaten away. Obviously, it would be to the highest sustainable investment principles. Um, and then I would take the returns on that. So let's say I get I have a billion dollars. So I earn five percent. So now I'm going to have fifty million dollars every year without eating away that billion dollars. So the question is, how would I give away that fifty million dollars? Uh, for me, the highest ROI is actually education to women in poor countries. That if you want to talk about dollars spent, I think that from everything that I've seen, providing really strong education to women means that it's going to address our population issues, um, means that it's going to give them the opportunity to, to create livelihoods and to break those uh, cycles of poverty that exist. Um, and so that would likely be my mission. It's a good answer. I've thought about this. I know you have. <laughs> Guy, you're up next. I have not really thought about it. So I would definitely second the education idea because I think education is incredibly important um, in solving a lot of other issues. It's kind of like the starting point. Um, I think alleviating poverty would also – so education and alleviating poverty in tandem. Um, I think also I would, I would be interested in putting stuff towards um, research funds – um, yeah, not sure. <laughs> All right. So I have also thought about this at, uh, at great length and I want to include a facet that, uh, that, uh, both of you left out, uh, which is, you know, that I've felt, uh, as, as I just sort of identified, I've felt, you know, for a variety of reasons through my life choices, financially insecure for quite a bit of my life. So first thing is it would, uh, buy a very modest property in Toronto. I love this city. Um, so that I could stop worrying about paying my rent. Uh, something very modest that I wouldn't have to worry about that, as you said, obviously, and then uh, put aside just enough money based on the uh, interest so that I could you know, cover the bill. So basically my, my food and my, my, house, my shelter and my food was theoretically secured. Sure. We, we actually have a term for that. Uh, it's called your fuck off fund. Yes, that's my so fuck off fund. So you would set up your fuck off fund. I would do that to free my mind. Perfect. And what I would do is, and it's a, a bit, uh, not boring from uh, Kai, but uh, very similar to that, um, is that uh, I'm very, I'm very, become increasingly cognizant of the fact that there's more of us than there are of them. And I think that a campaign uh, that was fought on behalf of the people who need assistance the most and who have the most to offer once they could also be freed and how much benefit we'd get, how many, untold, how many unused resources of human resources of ideas and creativity and passion are left untapped because people are desperate to get food and shelter. So it would, uh, I would be very interested in starting a new political party, finding a t people uh, who have uh, similar predilections to me in the sense that they're science enthusiasts who have a good ability to speak to go out there and find all this data and speak about the data and say look this isn't about ideology this is about facts and the facts show that society benefits when we do this and and go and really fight for this guaranteed minimum income and market it as the revitalization of our society by freeing up by all this creativity and resources and all this potential economic development so that we can have a society where people are actually able to contribute. And that would be my main thing. So it would be uh, uh, something around uh, 
science-based policy, and I don't think any of the current parties have the infrastructure to really do that. I think it requires a brand new party. So I would start a party, and in the sense of doing that, because I know start, when you start as a party, uh, you're going to be ridiculed for quite some uh, time. So the argument out there would be to put out uh, educational information and go and collect a lot of these not-for-profits that work on poverty issues and racial and social justice and all these things and say, look, we're going to be a party just to solve those issues. We're, we're here to basically bring up the bottom so that we can actually start putting all these people's great talent and great work uh, that have been uh, pushed to the sidelines either for racial, economic, social, uh, and financial injustice issues so that we can really re-enliven this country and hopefully this world if the, if the idea worked to roll it out. Uh, but it would be essentially a combination. It would be essentially a giant political marketing campaign for reality uh, based on the facts, uh, based on science, and based on just general respect for human dignity. Awesome. So there you go. I've never thought about this before at all, have I, obviously. Uh, okay, so that's it. Thank you so much for your time today, uh, uh, Tim, for joining us. Kai, I really appreciate it whenever you're able to stick around, so thank you for that too. And thank you, listener, for sticking it out because you've been making it almost an hour and a half at this point if you listen to this podcast all in one go. So thank you so much to you as well. Take care. Take care.